Thank you so much for that. If you have your um, uh, outline, you can go ahead and take that. Take your Bible and turn to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. One of the things I want to establish as we talk about this very difficult topic right from the very beginning, and we got my uh, PowerPoint available, uh, men, if you get around to it, if you are able. There we go. Thank you so much. Um, is that the Scripture presents a very high view and the dignity of people. Uh, the Scripture elevates the dignity of man. Uh, we are not just animals, as evolutionary biologists would try to convince you of. We are not just smart apes. We have dignity because we are made the image of God. And I love this passage to start off with because it establishes the, the importance of understanding this basic concept. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength. Because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. And I consider your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that which you have ordained. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And we could spend a lot of time here. We're not going to for the sake of time, but verses four and five. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you visit him? You have made him lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor given him dominion, the, the elevation, the dignity of all human life. Let's not miss that. Uh, human beings are inherently, have dignity because they are made by God, specially by God. So as we talk about this topic, I want to keep that in the forefront of our minds. This is very difficult. When you talk about this with people, you will have very, very emotional responses. And so I want to equip you tonight with the tools you need to help people and to be, uh, uh, to be a godly influence in our world around us. Because where, you know, where, where are we? What are we dealing with? Uh, let's, get, let's get oriented before we get any In fact, let's have a word of prayer before we go any further and ask God to bless our time. Father, we just ask today that you be here among us and that you, you help us to have a heart and a, and, a, and a passion to love those who do not love you and those who have rejected you. Father, may we have a compassionate heart to share with them the good news of Christ, knowing that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, and that these folks need to hear the good news of Christ, and that people need to be given hope. And we thank you for the, pa the power of your word that, that, that is transcendent over our feelings and over our fears. And bless our time together tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin, we need to find uh, a little bit of orientation here. What are we talking about? When we talk about this issue, first, what is an abortion? Technically, and I promise you, I will keep this as um, as uh, I'm not going to get into gory details here. But technically, an abortion is when a birth happens prematurely, so that a child dies. 
That's the technical definition here. Many times this happens naturally. And uh, in the body, it sometimes it happens seemingly without reason. We don't know. Many of you have had uh, what we call commonly miscarriages. And a miscarriage is an abortion, uh, a natural abortion. In fact, if you talk to a doctor, he may refer to a miscarriage as an abortion. And that is not, uh, that is not what we're referring to here in, in, the, in, the, in the issue of abortion. It is, this happens. Uh, it is a natural part of life, and it happens often. In fact, when we refer to natural abortions or miscarriages, there's no moral problems associated with that, okay? Uh, sometimes a child lives, sometimes a child does not make it outside of the womb. But when we talk about an induced abortion, what we're referring to is an act whereby the child's development is prematurely interrupted by an outside force, either chemically or medically. And it's often done violently. And I don't want to list all the various methods here. I have had, I've heard these. I'm sure you can uh, in, investigate that yourself. But to be completely honest, most of these methods are so barbaric that I fear I could uh, probably pass out <laughs> trying to explain this uh, to you. I have had um, people read these things before, and I've actually got lightheaded, just to be completely honest. It is a, it's not pleasant. So we're, we're not going to talk about that, but basically we're referring to elective-induced abortions when we refer to abortion. So we talk about abortion in the USA, we're, we're brief history of where we are, where we have been. Um, uh, in 1973, the uh, Roe v. Wade uh, decision came down. Many of you are familiar with Roe v. Wade. It, it was in January of that month, uh, or that year. It has been the de facto legal right for women to seek an abortion in the first two trimesters of their pregnancy nationwide. So culturally, uh, the impact of this has been absolutely staggering in our culture. Um, what it did was it decoupled sex from the responsibility of childbearing. Um, it created a culture of death that made way for other deaths for convenience sake, such as, um, you know, societies that embrace abortion will embrace things like euthanasia, which is assisted suicide, rampant drug use, which is a kind of death while living, and other uh, self-harm behaviors. So um, it also communicated that womanhood and motherhood is not a desirable state for women. Language around abortion is centered around the body being, I mean, the baby being like a parasite rather than a child of, inside the mother. So uh, this has been very, very dangerous uh, ever since 1973, and you, you've seen it in our culture. Uh, it's really worked itself out. Planned Parenthood v. Casey is another uh, well-known. Uh, it, 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 I'm not going to get into the, the technical things here because, honestly, I, I'm not an expert on the legal side of this as much, but um, in 1992, the Supreme Court upheld Roe at the first big challenge of Roe. This was seen as a possibility of overturning Roe, and what they called for was called an undue burden test, where things shifted, where they said the states cannot put an undue burden on a mother seeking an abortion. So they basically ensured abortion in the first 24 week of pre weeks of pregnancy. And then most recently, what you've seen in the news is Dobbs v. Jackson, which is the uh, Jackson, Mississippi Women's Health Center, which is an abortion clinic in Jackson, Mississippi. And in 2018, what happened was Mississippi passed a law that banned abortions operations after the first 15 weeks of pregnancy, which violates the undue burden clause of Casey. And so this was challenged and brought up to the Supreme Court, and the decision was set to be released this spring, summer of this year. Uh, what we found was uh, there was this leak of the um, Supreme Court decision uh, to overturn, and, it, and, it, and the decision came out uh, this past week, Monday, I think it was, uh, it was leaked to the press that uh, the, the, the draft opinion uh, uh, by Sam Alito which says that they are going to overturn Roe v. Wade and return the decision of abortion back to the states. Now, I would say cautiously optimistic about this, but we do not know if this is the final draft or not. We do not know where things stand. It's, it's possible 
that think this is not where things will end up. And if that's the case, we're, we're in a bad place. But we're not going to get into all the politics of this per se, but I do want to mention the stats on abortion. It's been estimated that over 63 million abortions have occurred since Roe. 63 million people. Between 1975 and 2012, America had over 1 million abortions per year. The abortion rate has dropped in the past few years. Those stats, by the way, are widely available, and there are different estimates on exactly how many abortions occur per year. Now, it appears that the Supreme Court in the United States is ready to overturn Roe v. Wade and return the regulations of abortion back to states. This is a huge deal, but it isn't the end of the road. As Christians, we have to recognize that, you know, we've been praying for this for a long time. A lot of you have been very active in the pro-life community, praying that God would do something. But once you understand what abortion is, we ought to be motivated to extend protections to the most vulnerable, to as many as possible. Ronald Reagan once said, I've noticed that everyone who is for abortion has already been born. Now, what's the Bible say about this? We're here at church. Uh, we're opening our Bibles Let's look at some of the passages of Scripture that talk about the child in the womb. And uh, if you want to turn to these, you can. I list them all there. You can turn ahead. I'm not going to turn in my Bible. I have them in my notes because we're covering a lot of ground. So just bear with me here. There are very many indications that preborn children are persons. And this is an important distinction to make. The Bible indicates that preborn children, preborn babies, are indeed considered persons. We see this from Genesis uh, 25. There is uh, this story. The twins are identified here as fully human inside their mother as they struggle with one another. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, two peoples separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Within her body were two people wrestling with one another. If you keep going, we also have in Psalm 51, verse 5, David says that he was a sinner from his conception. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He was a sinner from his very birth. He was, he was, identified, not, he was identified in his conception as a sinner. And then I love this passage from Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. God describes in Psalm 119 the picture of God like a, like a, a, a skilled craftsman making a child in the mother's womb. It's, it's a beautiful picture, knitting together the, the being inside the mother's womb. And it's amazing for us today, we can see these pictures, which I'm going to show one in a minute, of, of a child in the womb. But up until about 50 years ago, it was impossible to see this. We keep going. Uh, we see a kind of a humorous story in, in Luke chapter 1. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greetings of Mary. The babe leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She spoke out with a loud voice. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this you have granted to me? The mother of my Lord should come to me. For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Here we have uh, the, the babe leaping in her womb. John the Baptist getting excited a little early, right? 
Uh, yet there is one more passage. If you want to turn here, this is a little bit complicated, but it is fascinating. There is a law in the Old Testament concerning harming a pregnant woman and a child. This is fascinating from Exodus chapter 21. There have been different ways of, of interpreting and of translating this passage, and this is the most reasonable and also, I think, the best uh, way of translating this passage. Our New King James does a good job. There were a couple bad translations that people have used for, uh, in different ways, but we'll just walk through this right here. It says, if men fight and hurt a woman with a child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, that meaning the child does not die, he shall surely be punished according to the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. Okay, the picture here, it's case, this is called case law. You have different kinds of law in the Old Testament. Sometimes there's just a straight-up law, thou shalt not steal. Here, this is called case law, where a series of situations is listed for us, and then here's how you rule if this is to happen. So the scenario is laid out for us. This is not um, you know, something that is, 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 is desirable, but if this happens, this way that two men are fighting, and somehow there's a woman who's pregnant who's standing nearby, and, and the men are fighting, and they hurt. one of the men hurts uh, the, child, the woman, uh, and it may not be, one of those men may not be the, the father of that child. This is just an innocent bystander who has a child. He, he, in the wrestling or in the fighting, perhaps they shove one another and they run into this woman and the, and the, 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 uh, the harm that happens to her, or actually the, the collision that happens with her means that she gives birth, but no harm follows. What that means is that um, premature birth, but no further injury. Okay, she was, she was uh, injured, but not, not, not dangerously. In other words, the baby did not die. She's okay. The baby's okay in the end. If that happens, here's the, 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 the legal requirement is that they are paid a fine for their negligent behavior. He shall be punished according to the woman's husband. So the woman's husband is, is able to establish the, the penalty, and then the judge has to arbitrate this. And you understand that, with, that just because the baby's born does not mean all things are good. He has still caused harm in, in the premature birth, and there is extra danger involved there. So therefore, uh, that is the case. But here's the other condition. If you keep reading the passage, let me go back to it. But if any harm follows, and what that means is if the child dies in birth, either is uh, miscarried or is born, stillborn because of the injury, then you shall give, notice this, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. In other words, if I were to be wrestling or if two men were to be wrestling with one another and fighting with one another, there's a pregnant woman standing by, they harm her, and she gives birth to a stillborn child, their life is required of that. This is elevating the life of a child, a baby, in the womb to that of a man who's full grown. You see that the significance here is that a life in the child is considered to be a full person in the legal uh, grounds of the Scripture. So we saw here um, the, the Bible tells us that, oh, here we go, let me walk through this. Harm follows, loses the child, result is life for life, etc. Or if there's some harm of the baby, then that will be extracted of the man. So we saw that the pre-born children are persons, and secondly, children are a heritage of the Lord or from the Lord. We see a couple verses of this where every time children are mentioned in the Bible, they are mentioned positively as a gift from God. He lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, who are these with you? And she said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. God is the one who gives children. This is a dramatic 
completely different perspective from the way the world treats children. How does the world treat, in fact, I was just listening to the radio this week. They were interviewing women about this decision, and the, one of the women on the radio says uh, that uh, you have no idea. Children cost a lot of money. Yes, yes, they do. Yes, they do. And therefore, she says that you ought to uh, be able to abort your children. Children cost a lot of money. They're a nuisance uh, for your personal freedom and your autonomy. If you have a child, you can't go out and do the stuff you used to do. Yes, that, that is true. That is true. Um, children are a bother for you. As, as uh, you know, if you have forgotten, some of you are oh, beyond the time when your children wake you up in the middle of the night, or you're trying to have a moment of quiet to talk with your spouse, and you're being interrupted constantly by children. Children can do that. But, that does, that, but the biblical perspective on children is not to see children as a nuisance or a bother or a, a cost. It is to see them as something, a gift a, that God has given us graciously. It's to say, thank you, Lord, for the children you have given me. Uh, Psalm 139 describes joy like a joyful mother of children, praise the Lord. And Psalm 127.3, this is where I get this phrase from. Children are heritage from the Lord. The word heritage means like hereditary property. It's like wealth from God. You're not a very wealthy person, but if God has given you children, he's given you wealth. He's given you great wealth from God. We ought to consider that a blessing. Thirdly, God blesses when he opens the womb. The scripture clearly teaches God is the one who opens and shuts the womb. Genesis 29, verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has given me this son, and she called his name Simeon. Chapter 30, verse 22, God remembered Rachel. He listened to her, and he opened her womb. And then from this morning, I read from 1 Samuel 1, 19 and 20, she had a son named Samuel, saying, because I have asked him of the Lord. God's blessing is opening the womb. That is a blessing. It is not a curse to have children. What a dramatically different way our world thinks. Our world sees children as a problem. We ought to, as Christians, be promoting the idea that Christian, uh, the Christian idea that children are a blessing. We have to be teaching that to people. We keep going. We see that abortion is not the unpardonable sin. Turn with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Now, abortion is killing. It is murder. And many of God's men were the sinners who had murdered others. Moses murdered an Egyptian. David murdered Uriah because he had committed adultery with his wife Bathsheba. And just like any other sin, you can be forgiven of your sin. Once you are forgiven, you listen to this very carefully. Once you are forgiven, you do not have to spend your life atoning for your sin. When you are forgiven, you are forgiven. If you've had an abortion and you've asked God to forgive you, you are forgiven just as if those who've lied have asked God to forgive us. We are forgiven. You do not have to spend your life making up for your sin. Does that make sense? This is, this is important for us to understand because abortion is not like any other sin in the fact that it can be forgiven by God and Christ atoned for that sin completely. Look at Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak, blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth 
in the inward parts and in the hidden part you will make known wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Notice that God is the one doing the cleansing. God is the one doing the purging. God is the one doing the, 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 the cleaning up, the washing. We do not do that to ourselves. Many women who have, had these, uh, have committed this sin in the past live a life of guilt so much so they, they build up a, a burden on them and they feel so much guilt and so much remorse for this that they try to atone for their sins. Friend, cast it to Jesus. He says, Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Notice verse 11. This is an Old Testament prophet, Old Testament king speaking here. This is not possible for the Christian today. The Spirit of God does not leave the Christian. The Spirit of God indwells the Christian. In the Old Testament, it was possible that the indwelling presence of the Spirit could be removed from a, from a king, but not in the New Testament era. We're told this. We're promised this. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Now, one more passage in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. We turn there. That was the Old Testament. Obviously, here we deal with the New Testament. We are in the New Testament era, after all. 1 John 1, 9 tells us this. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How can God make that promise? Look at chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Jesus died so your sins could be paid for. And if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just. That means he will always do it, and he is righteous to do it, to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you, to clean you up. Sin stains. Christ can clean up your staining effect of sin. Okay, you have no reason to carry the weight and the burdens like you might have. It, abortion is not the unpardonable sin that sends you to hell. Okay, I want to be very clear about that. And now we've looked at what the Scripture has to teach us about that. Let's look a little bit about some scientific information about abortion. I found this quote from Dr. Diane Irving, who's a biochemist and biologist and professor at Georgetown University. She says this, to begin with, scientifically, something very radical occurs between the processes of gametogenesis and fertilization. The change from a simple part of one human being, i.e. a sperm, and the simple part of another human being, i.e. an ossigite, or os oocyte, usually referred to as an ovum or an egg, which simply possesses human life, to a new, genetically unique, newly existing, individual, whole living human being, a single-cell embryonic human zygote. That is, upon fertilization, parts of a human being's have actually been transformed into something very different from what they were before. They have been changed into a single whole human being. And during the process of fertilization, the sperm and the... I practiced that word. I am so sorry. I did. I did. It's like oocyte. I, I can't say it right. It ceased to exist as such, and a new human being is produced. 
When, when the, the radical, when the beauty of conception happens, it is no longer part of a person and part of a person. You now have a unique person. So scientifically, the baby in the womb is a unique person from the moment of conception. Life begins at conception. There is no other objective measure of when life begins, period. You cannot say life, something changes once a child exits the birth canal or something changes at some point. There is no difference genetically from a child at its first moment to the child when it is breathing on its own. Now, now when Roe passed, what happened inside of the womb was a mystery. We had to take it by faith that there was a child in there. He knew something was happening, but it was a very big mystery. In fact, if you look back at Psalm 51, when, or Psalm uh, 137, 139, it's 139. When, when, when David talks about being conceived in his mother's womb, he talks about God knitting him in the lowest parts of the earth. He compares the womb to the mystery of like the deepest, darkest parts of the earth. That's what he's talking about. The womb is this, this mysterious place, yet now we can see images like this. We can see a 3D image of a baby, and this is the 2D image here. It's a little blurry. But this is a 3D image of a baby sucking its thumb within the, in the womb. Isn't this unbelievable? This is what's happening inside of a mother's womb. It is a miracle that God allows us to be part of and God allows us to see. So what's the logic? We are the scientific part, the biblical part. What's the logic of upholding a pro-life position as believers in Jesus Christ? The first logical step is that all human beings are persons. It doesn't matter how young or how old, all human beings are persons made in the image of God. It doesn't matter how deformed or how perfect, all human beings are persons. When you try to disconnect being human from being a person, it's a fool's errand. All the distinctions that make humans persons may at some point not qualify to those who are clearly persons. For example, someone is sleeping is not exercising rational thought. You would say, what is a person? A person is someone who can exercise rational thought. When you're sleeping, you're not exercising rational thought. Therefore, are you not a person? Uh, someone is able to survive on their own if they're a person. Well, under what conditions are you able to survive on your own? You couldn't survive on your own without any clothes on the North Pole. Under what conditions is personhood established? There is the important point here is that personhood cannot be defined in terms of function. This is a little bit technical, but hang with me. Personhood cannot be defined, cannot be limited by someone's ability to do things. That means function. Personhood is not something that arises when certain functions are in place, but rather is something that grounds these functions whether or not they are actualized in the life of a human being. This quote here is from Francis Beckwith's article called Abortion, Bioethics, and Personhood, a Philosophical Reflection from the Southern Baptist Journal in spring of 2000. Francis says, consequently, what is crucial morally is the being of a person, not his or her functioning. A human being does not come into existence when human function arises, but rather a human person is an entity who has the natural inherent capacity to give rise to human functions, whether or not those functions are ever attained. And since the unborn human has his, this natural inherent capacity from the moment it comes into existence, she is a person as long 
as she exists. I used to ask a question kind of as a joke, not completely as a joke. I used to ask, which is going to get personhood first, endangered whales or baby kids? Because personhood is defined by law. It's not obvious. And if you've been around for American history, you know that at one point in our country, certain people were defined as three-fifths of a person. Personhood is not to be just taken for granted. We have to argue that all human beings are persons fully. It's important we recognize this. Thirdly, the child, I guess secondly, a child in the womb is a unique human person. The child in the womb is not not part of the mother's body. The child possesses unique DNA from its mother. A child might be male, and it would be wrong to say that a mother has four eyes, four ears, two noses, and male genitalia. Pregnancy means that the creation of a completely unique human being, because he exists, deserves to be protected, and unique human beings should be treated as such even when they are in utero. In fact, I love this quote, it is not a potential human life, it is a human life with potential. Third, the unwarranted killing or murder of a human person is always wrong. I could say human being there, I just put person because I'm trying to emphasize that we're talking about all human beings or persons. The scripture establishes capital punishment for anyone who murders. I said unwarranted, because the scripture is very clear that all killing is not wrong. There's warfare where killing is appropriate. There is capital punishment, which is the killing of a murderer, which elevates the value of that crime, or the seriousness of that crime, I should say. This command is based on the fact that men and women are made in the image of God. Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed for, here's your reasoning, in the image of God he made man. Because people are made in the image of God, capital punishment is acceptable for murder. And Exodus 20, verse 13 says, you shall not murder. A lot of your translations say, you shall not kill, but the word there means to kill someone without cause, i.e. murder. Also, I will be very clear, and I know this might be a little bit Uh, point of tension among some people, but I believe that a child should not die for the sins of their parents. A child conceived in rape or incest has a father who has committed a grave crime. However, this does not mean a child should be executed for the crime of their father. Fourth, abortion is the violent act whereby an innocent life is intentionally, unnaturally taken. The life of a baby is innocent in that it has committed no crime and deserves no such punishment. That's why we believe in upholding and promoting a pro-life position across the board. Now, let's answer some objections from pro-abortion advocates. I promise I'll have opportunity for questions at the end from you all. So hang on to any questions you have, and I'm looking forward to answering anything you might, you might ask. Number one, there's a question uh, that some say, well, the child is unable to survive on its own. Well, neither are you in certain circumstances. Like I already mentioned, a child just having been born cannot survive if it's left on its own. This is not an effective argument against personhood. The question to ask someone, well, could you survive on your own? 
Uh, what about those who do not, cannot survive on their own, such as those who need feeding tubes or are hooked up to a breathing machine? Do they not deserve to live? That's not a convincing argument by any stretch. Just because someone, it's a function argument. They're not able to do something, therefore they are not a person. Secondly, the presence of birth defects ought to allow for abortion. Now, there's two parts to this. Number one, this is selfish and barbaric because it is a judgment from those of us who are alive that a child would be better off if they never existed than if they were coming to a life of hardship. Recognize this, that none of us is perfect. Everybody's got something wrong. All of us have our defects. They just not, might not be as visible. They might not be as life-altering as someone else's. And many people with Down syndrome or other severe handicaps will speak of how these handicaps have made them empathetic and caring. In my family, we have a lot of people who have uh, autism, and my wife's cousin has Downs, and we have people like this in our We've had people in our church who have uh, mental handicaps, and, and you know those families, that, that person often holds that family together. They are, a, they are a, a special person in any community they are in. How, how, how horrible of us to see that as a, as a flaw, as something that ought to be done away with. When Iceland announced that they, they had, they had uh, eradicated Down syndrome, you know what that means. That means they had aborted all the Down syndrome kids that were coming into the world. How, how a horrible, barbaric activity. That's just the worst kind of selfishness from human beings who have already been born, who look at children coming in that might be too hard to work. Because let's be honest, kids with handicaps are, are harder than kids without handicaps, typically. They, they're harder to parent. They, they might be in your house for a very long time. It can be very difficult. That does not mean they don't deserve to live. Secondly, um, they're not always right about these things. Um, there's a comedian named Lynn Ferguson, not a believer. I've actually shared this clip with some of you in the past, and I'd be happy to share it with anyone who emails me. There's an audio clip. There's a video, I think, out there, too. This woman, Lynn Ferguson, she, she's an actor. She's famous for her voice work she did in the, in the kids' movie called Chicken Run. You may have seen that. She's, she's from Scotland. She's got a really thick accent. She tells a gut-wrenching story of how doctors told her that her son in the womb would be born with a serious birth defect, and the best option would be for her to abort him. And she's a, she's a very liberal, not a Christian, pro-choice person. And she tells in the story how she could not make the decision to do that. Instead, she made the decision to reject the doctor's advice and have the child instead. And, and over and over again, the doctor told her and brought this up as it would be better for both of you if you just did this. It would be better. And you know what happened? The child was born, and they found out that he was absolutely perfect. There was nothing wrong. It was a false positive. They are not always right. And sometimes this happens. In the story, she says the only thing wrong with him was he had an abnormally large head, just like his father. <laughs> it's a great, great story. I encourage you to understand the fact that, that this is not a reason. Third, abortion should be allowed to save the life of the mother. This is very, very rare. According to Jean Change in the article Pregnancy-Related Mortality Surveillance in the United States from 1991 to 1999 from the CDC, only 0.118% of abortions are to save the life of the mother. Now, it does happen. 
There are ectopic pregnancies where the very young embryo is stuck in the fallopian tube. It will result in the death of a child either way, perhaps. Or there are examples where abortion is done to preserve the life of the mother when the mother's life is in danger and the baby's life is in danger. And if the baby's life and the mother's life are genuinely in danger, that is the only kind of case where you can make the moral argument that abortion would be permissible. And this is understandable. We talk about the life of the mother. We're not talking about emotional distress that might be associated with something like giving birth. We're talking about actual life endangerment. Next. Quote, I'm personally against abortion, but I think people ought to be able to make that decision. Well, why would you be against abortion personally? Because it kills? Then why would you be for allowing someone else to do it? If you were to use this logic anywhere else, it shows it for what it is. This is moral cowardice. That's all it is. It's moral cowardice. Try to use the same logic with other things. Say this, I'm not personally in favor of murder, but I don't recommend, you know, I don't, I'm not personally in favor of drunk driving. I'm not personally in favor of domestic abuse, but I don't recommend having laws against these things because I think that individual shooters ought to be able to make that choice on their own. I think that drivers ought to make that choice. I think that abusers have the right to decide for themselves if they will engage in, in domestic abuse. Some will say, if you don't like an abortion, don't have one. Think about how this logic would play out with slavery. Don't like slavery? Don't have a slave. The, 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 the moral cowardice of this decision means that you don't think it's good, but you don't have the moral strength or backbone to stand up to tell people who want to do this, no, you can't do that, that's wrong. This is becoming, this last one is becoming the most popular one I've heard. Quote, the mother has the right to consent for use of her body for pregnancy. As science has clearly demonstrated that the baby in the womb is not a clump of cells, but an independent human being, those in favor of abortion seem to have changed their argument. And this is one of the most common objections I have heard. Now, I think there are two places we have to consider. Number one, in the case of regular conception. That is, in the case of regular sexual activity that produces a child, the consent to sexual activity is consent to having a child. The law recognizes this, by the way. In fact, if you are a father and you want a child aborted and the mother does not agree and carries the baby to term, that father is still required to pay child support. Did you know that? I have an article here from, um, uh, there's an article, Dubay versus Wells. It was uh, argued in court. This father did not want his, his wife to carry, or his girlfriend to carry this baby. He tried, to, he didn't want anything to do with it. She had the baby, he still had to pay child support because when he engaged in sexual activity, he agreed to engage in sexual activity. Therefore, the baby was part of that, okay? Two, this is more difficult. I already mentioned this a little bit, but in the case of rape or incest, this is very rare. But in this case of rape, when, when a child is conceived in rape or incest, a crime has already been committed once my question, why compound this sin? Of this quote from Carl Laney, who wrote in Bibliotheca Sacra in 1982, he said, aborting the baby does not end the trauma of the rape, it compounds the sin. In this case, you have a guilty father, an innocent mother, and an innocent child. Why is it the innocent child is the one who has to die? So what's a Christian to think? story of the Bible, the overwhelming themes of the Bible, especially in the book of Genesis, they center on the preservation of the godly line and God's role in preserving life. 
just in the book of Joseph, as, I mean, the book of Genesis, the story of Joseph, as we've been going through this, how many times have you noticed God sent me to do this to preserve life? Life is a huge part of the Bible story. God's preserving life and bringing life from unlikely situations. God's dramatic power to preserve life is a theme in the Bible. We must be ones who promote life, we promote flourishing, and we warn people about pursuing things that end up in death. We must be doing that as Christians. How do we do that? I believe we must engage with culture. Really, we have to say, what's a Christian to do? I mentioned Carl Laney earlier. He wrote an article called The Abortion Epidemic, America's Silent Holocaust. It's from 1982. And it gives several suggestions for Christians. He recommends, like prophets of old, that we cry out against social injustice and the moral injustice of our day. And this sin has been one of the greatest injustices in our country today. What are we to do? How can we do it? I give you several bullet points in the end there. I believe these are practical points we can use. Number one, information. We ought to be educating ourselves because I think one of the biggest problems is people do not understand what abortion is. You need to be familiar with things we've talked about tonight so when someone talks to you about it, you have a biblical perspective. <coughs> we need to educate believers. I believe that's what we're doing tonight. And we need to educate our children on biblical truths of sex, conception, and childbearing. The world has decoupled sex from childbearing, therefore the two are unrelated. Biblical, biblical understanding of these things is crucial. Information is crucial. Two, prayer. Um, after many years, it looks like Roe v. Wade will not make its 50th birthday. That's, a, that's one death I will happily celebrate. We should be praying that this scourge of abortion will be completely outlawed in our country, and I believe that starting with our state, we ought to promote, we ought to promote a state-by-state -state effort to completely get rid of this scourge. It begins with prayer. We can only do so much. We are little people, but God is a big God. Three, we should be supporting political candidates who promote life and understand the importance of an issue. We need to be talking to our representatives, and I will be telling them I'm refusing to vote for anyone who is not pro-life, period. We need to support local organizations that are helping with this issue. The Palmetto Pregnancy Center and Tender Hearts are helping on the front lines of this. Uh, we have died. I have spoken to the Palmetto Pregnancy Center, uh, given devotion over there. We've given, many of you have given uh, much to the Palmetto Pregnancy Center. Many of you have volunteered hours. Many of you have done much uh, to support the women in our communities who face unwanted pregnancies. And I know many believers who've already committed to adopting children who are saved from abortion clinics. I'm not saying all of you need to do that specifically. But I believe if we're going to truly support life, we need to start thinking in this direction. We also need to challenge our young people to stay pure in their minds and in their actions. This is how you support your families. <coughs> Teach them that they need to be careful in what they do with their body. We also need to support young families and young Christian marriages. This church, what does it look like? We could support new moms by giving liberally at baby showers, speaking positively about children. When you talk about kids, smile. Enjoy the gifts that God has given. Support. Counsel. 
be ready to counsel people through this. There are post-abortive counseling. It's a huge need throughout the country. I've gotten several advertisements in my box all the time for counselors, biblical counselors who do post-abortive counseling. If you or someone you know has had an abortion and needs counseling, we can connect you with someone who'd be able to sit down with you in private, not publicize, wouldn't drag you up here and make you give some sort of big speech, just privately encourage you to understand the forgiveness you have in Christ and the hope you have moving forward. I think mothers and fathers are often traumatized by their decision to end the life of their child. And it's no joke that uh, abortion is often the beginning of many mental health problems, spiritual problems in the life of a person because of what they've gone through. The regret, the guilt compounds. Lastly, I believe we ought to have compassion. There's a temptation for believers to get angry. But I want you to notice Christ's attitude of love for victims, including women who are pressured into abortions. God's love for those who are sinners. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's compassion for us was so demonstrated towards us in that it did not matter that we were sinners, that we were rebellious, shaking our fist in God's face, sinning against him and offending him. God loves us so much that he sent Christ to die for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I think this is important. We must be people who have information, who are praying, who are supporting, counseling, and having compassion on folks. If we don't have that, then we're not ready for what's getting ready to happen in our country if Roe is indeed overturned. Continue to pray, continue to pray, continue to pray. Okay, are there any questions, things that you want to address? I told you we'd take some questions. We have a few minutes here at the end, and I know that nursery is still uh, watching kids. Thank you, nursery people. You guys are heroes, uh, but uh, we're a little bit over, but not too far over. Any questions? I- I'll take any uh, you want. If, if, you don't, um, if you don't mind being loud, and I can repeat the question back into the microphone so everybody can hear. Anybody have a question? Anything we talked about tonight or anything um, uh, that I can help direct you to something if you know, ask a question, any kind of question. It can be anything. Okay. Or not. We don't have to ask, answer, uh, ask any questions. That's fine, too. Yes, sir, Tim. Yeah, and, and people have asked, I didn't cover this, but there's a question people often ask, what happens to aborted babies when they die? It's my belief, uh, citing the scripture, that um, any child that dies um, before some sort of age of accountability, which is not laid out clearly, in, that part isn't laid out clearly in scripture, but it seems uh, clearly in scripture that, that, that those children who die will be in the presence of their Lord and their creator. So there is that, um, that does not make it any less sad on our end, right? Any other questions? Yes, sir. Oh, the name of the professor. Let's see if I can find the uh, quote here, if I just have it. Um, let's see here. Let's go back, back, back. Oh, that's a ter- I'm sorry the way that showed up on the screen. That's Francis Beckwith. Uh, no, that's not the right one. Um, Diane Irving, does that sound right? Look at my notes here. Yeah, that does sound right. Let's see here. 
Yes, Diane Irving, Dr. Diane Irving. Uh, I got the quote from uh, Wayne Grudem's book, Politics and the Bible, uh, is where he quoted that on page 161 of that book, Diane Irving from Georgetown. She's a bioethicist, yeah. There it is, Diane Irving. Yes, Jenna? Right. So uh, if you look at history of, of this discussion, there have been a lot of different opinions about when exactly a child is alive. Uh, I think it was Thomas Aquinas who believed in what was called quickening. He believed that uh, he's a Catholic uh, scholastic way back a long time ago, you know, medieval times, I think. I mean, I don't exactly know the date of this, but uh, hundreds of years ago, he would say that when you feel the baby moving, the baby's alive. That was the general thought for a long time. I don't know exactly. It was pretty well known. I mean, you, you could examine things. You could hear heartbeats. You could do kinds of But it could also be argued from uh, those who are pro-choice, those who are pro-abortion arguments, is something to the effect of, well, it's just a clump of cells. It, it, at some point, it becomes a baby. We don't know when. Sometime in the third trimester, it probably is more human than not. I mean, they had seen um, naturally aborted fetuses before. Fetus is just another word for baby. It's just Latin for baby. So people use the word fetus to sometimes dehumanize and call it a fetus instead of a baby. You can call it either one. It's not right or wrong. I always try to call them baby when I can. But um, uh, does that make, so, so there, there was some, I don't think there was much good faith argument, but there might have been some where people said, we really don't know. Uh, we don't know the answer to that. And so there was as science has caught up, as science has been able to see more and more of what's happening inside the womb with ultrasound technology, 3D ultrasounds, et cetera, it's, it's, there's no doubt. Like, you can see babies doing things. They suck their thumb. They have all these different reactions. They can hear. They can respond to touch. They can respond to sound. They, they are, uh, we, we know all these different developmental things that we did not know even back when Roe was, was decided in 73. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. You can do that, yeah. Um, I, I want to typically do, just so you know, my, my philosophy on this is I, I try not to be uh, intentionally antagonist or intentionally provocative. What I, what my, my goal when I talk to someone is to, is to state their argument in a way that they would agree with what I'm saying, like agree with my explanation of their argument. So if I say, so all those arguments I gave you here, these are all arguments that, um, that I've, I, if you are pro-choice, pro-abortion, whatever, you, you would, and I, I articulate your argument, my goal is that they are able to agree with how I articulate their argument. So yes, you can call, that is, I mean, accurate, um, but just so you know, that's how, I, I, when I talk to someone who's pro-abortion, who's pro-choice, I, I wouldn't call them pro-death just for that reason, because um, they would call me anti-choice, Right. But but I'm gonna call I'm gonna I'm gonna refer, I'm gonna try to and this is just a tactic it isn't I, I agree I'm not I'm not disagreeing with you I, I'm just you understand you want to see what I'm saying. Correct. 
Right, and that's why you, that's why I talked about scientific stuff tonight. The fact that it's an undepe totally independent uh, human being with its own DNA, its own body parts, etc., uh, is important. And, and, and really it comes down to if you have to appeal to their conscience and appeal to the, um, appeal to the truth that they know that God has, has that they know the truth and they suppress the truth like Romans 1 talks about in many ways. So you're right that you're never going to make that, win that argument with someone who is, um, who is choosing to suppress the truth. However, it's important that you still speak the truth, and I, I don't mind. I bring up the Bible stuff to show you the Bible does have some, something to say about the, the womb. Some people say the Bible doesn't discuss. It doesn't use the word abortion. Well, of course not. <laughs> the the uh, abortion procedures weren't around. It wouldn't use the word machine gun, you know, but there are, there are implications for how we have to use machine guns, you know. So anyway, yes, another question. Was there one back here? I thought I saw a hand. Nope. Yes, sir. Casey. The Bible, what does the Bible say about contraception? That is a good question. Um, there are all not as many, th there are a few things about contraception in the Bible. Um, that is a, yeah, there, Christians are divided on exactly how much, um, let me put it this way. I think probably the safest thing to say is that probably any, any contraception, oh man, this is a tough one. It is, it is when it doesn't take the life of the baby, um, it is, it is a, probably a conscience issue. Um, it's never looked upon super favorably, uh, to be completely honest. There's never, um, there are a couple times when people engage in birth control, so, so to speak, and, and, but it's not, it's not like smiled upon. The biblical perspective is children are a blessing. It doesn't mean be stupid. Children are a blessing. And I don't exactly know. That's probably something better for like a one-on-one -on -one conversation, to be completely honest. But when we have, so when I do premarital counseling here, and I know this, I'm getting some hot water, but when we do premarital counseling here, we ask the couple to have a discussion about birth control. And my only requirement of them is that they agree. And then I talk about abortive birth controls. So there are certain birth controls which are abortive, and we discuss that, and we say, you make sure that if you decide to do this, that you're not ending the life of, a, of, a, of an embryo of a child. So we, there are all kinds of sticky subjects around uh, procreation, uh, ethically. And, um, yeah, I don't, I, that's not a great answer. That's the best I could do right now. Yes, ma'am. Sure, sure. I, I don't know enough. I'd have to do some research on Plan B. I, I don't know. I have heard, right? And and be honest. And and I would I would just have to I would have to do my research first. I would just say that I'm against uh, chemical um, abortions, and that probably would fall into that category. So, um, but I, I don't know enough. I didn't do that research before I stood up here, so I couldn't tell you. I would say that, again. A child being born is not the worst-case scenario. People think that a child being born is the end of their life. Um, many children have been born like that throughout history. I, I'm not saying it's ideal. If it's your kid, if it was my kid, I would be very upset. I get that. Um, but a child being born is not the end of the world. In fact, sometimes God uses those things for, for his great purposes. So, um, you know, I, I don't know. 
it depends on it depends on how the how the contraception is is designed. Yeah, good question though. That's a really good question, really really good one. Hot water question. I like that. Uh, other questions that put me in less hot water. Okay. Yes, ma'am. I, I couldn't hear you. I'm sorry. Euthanasia, yeah. Um, so those who those who engage, uh, so culture of death is what is the culture of um, devaluing life and seeing life as a, um, as a kind of utilitarian thing. If it provides value, then it's worth any, something. If it doesn't provide value, it's not worth something. Uh, euthanasia is very very wicked, and uh, that it takes God out of the driver's seat for um, when someone's life ends. We, we've had family members who have been very ill for a very long time. Jenna's grandpa, I don't know if a lot of you know this, he was in bed for three or four years, three years. How long was grandpa in bed? Five years? He had polio when he was a boy, and he, um, he was a very strong man. He had polio when he was a boy. He had a, one of his legs was short. And then once he got older, in his 90s, his body started to deteriorate, and he was in bed, could not move. Could not, he almost died a couple times, but then survived and lived for about five years in bed by himself. Finally, he ended up dying. He suffocated, basically, at the end. He just couldn't breathe. And it was his time to go. Um, there are a lot of people in, 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 in European countries who promote uh, a kind of euthanasia. At some point, he's like, his, his quality of life is so low that it's better for him to go. Um, that is not a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview is that God, when God takes us, he takes us. You'll notice that suicide in the Bible... Um, there are many people of God who wanted to die. Elijah said, Lord, take me, kill me. Jonah says, Lord, kill me. And God doesn't take him. He's not done with him yet. So it's not up to us. Uh, um, Patient-assisted suicide or euthanasia uh, is a very dangerous thing because what ends up happening is it becomes a uh, cost-saving measure for, for medical people is what normally it is or a, or a nuisance thing where they are, the people are not productive members of society so they can, be, uh, they can be killed. And it's just the other side of abortion. It's the exact same logic just applied to older people instead of the young. Yeah. Does that answer your question, sort of? Thank you. Good question. Anything else? Yes, Scott? No, so there's a difference, again, we're, not, we're uh, to speak of euthanasia, slightly different than abortion in that if someone were to stop or to resist treatment, that is different than to pursue treatment that kills, okay? So to, to, to resist, the people have DNRs, that's not the Department of Natural Resources, that's the do not resuscitate, right? Um, and they say, I, if, I am, if I am in this place, you know, pull the plug. It, refusing or, or withdrawing treatment is not the same as actively doing something, okay? And, and some people have made this argument that all you're doing with abortion is withdrawing, and that is not the case. If, and I didn't get into the details, but if you understand what happens with abortion, it's not just withdrawing support. It's violent, okay? And it would be wrong to withdraw support violently, even if it was, you know, if someone says they want to withdraw support, you don't, 
you know, come in there with a <laughs> and beat them over the head. You know, and I'm saying it, there is a there is a um, there is a responsibility there. You can do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Choose to not receive treatment. Mm -hmm. Okay. Any other questions? I, I I know this is hard, and I I know this can be exa emotionally exhausting, and I appreciate. Uh, your willingness to work through this and think about these very difficult things because I'm convinced that we're on the front end of some pretty serious discussions about this as a culture. Okay, what happened with Roe v. Wade, in my opinion, is that this was put on pause. It created a lot of conflict, but whenever I had this discussion with people, they would say something to the effect of, well, Roe's there, so what are you going to do? Roe's in the court, settled law, you, you can't do anything, so it doesn't matter. And the, and the conversations would kind of end there. Now that Roe is going to be gone, hopefully, Lord willing, um, we actually have the opportunity to have these discussions with people and actually mean something. Okay. So be in prayer. Please remember those last things I mentioned here at the end, and then we'll close. There they are. Information, prayer, support, counsel, and compassion. We must be, must be doing that as Christians, I think, or else we're failing. What an opportunity. What a great opportunity we have to shine as lights. In fact, let's turn to Matthew 5 as we close here. I want to just mention this passage and, and we will wrap up with this. Jesus speaking to his, uh, his, his people there on the Sermon of the Mount, in verse four, chapter 5 and verse 14 says this, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand that it gives light to all who are in the house. The picture in verse 14 and 15 is that you cannot but be seen. He's not saying make yourselves the light of the world. He says you are the light of the world and you will be seen. Since you're going to be seen, what should you do? Look at the next verse. Let your light shine in this way before men. So shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. People will be looking at you and how you respond to this. He's saying you are the light of the world. Therefore, when people see you, what will they conclude about your Father in heaven? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father. Let that be your encouragement as you head into this difficult topic. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much uh, for the wonderful opportunity to, to sit together and to work through this very difficult topic. We thank you that you have seen fit. It so seems to remove this uh, horrible ruling and allow us an opportunity as a people to enact righteous laws. And since our government is of the people, by the people, and for the people, Lord, may we as Christian people push godly laws. And Lord, may we not be ashamed to stand up and defend those who cannot defend themselves. We thank you, Lord, that you have called us to this, this life and this time. We pray that we would have the boldness and the courage to say what we need to say. And may, we light, may our light so shine so that others may see our good works and they may glorify God our Father who is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.